This is day six of this seven-day June 2023 Sashin. And we're going to continue with a, a sampling of dialogues between Banke, the renowned 17th century Zen master, and various monastics and lay people who attended training, <clears throat> training periods that he conducted at different temples in Japan. <clears throat> These dialogues appear in the book, The Unborn, The Life and Teachings of Zen Master Banke. And taken together, the material in this book, including his talks and the dialogues, represent what, what little has been preserved of Banke's teachings. The book's editor, Norman Waddell mentions in the introduction that Banke didn't even want his teachings to be set to words, words on a page. But his students kept a record anyway, so some of his teachings were preserved. And we'll start with a question from a layman who's caught up in thoughts about progress, which many of us can relate to. The layman says, I've practiced diligently for a long time, but even when I think I've advanced to where I won't backslide anymore, there's still a strong tendency to do so, and I sometimes slip back. How can I become so that I won't backslide? And Banke replies, live in the unborn Buddha mind. Then there's no regression, no need for advancement. Any idea of wanting to make progress is already a regression from the place of the unborn. A person of the unborn has nothing to do with either advancing or backsliding. One is always beyond them both. The whole notion of backsliding it's just a thought. We can't backslide any more than we can advance. As long as we're staying on the path, doing the practice diligently, that's all that matters, one moment at a time. Let's say you were setting out for a hike up a mountain. You, you study the trail map. You know the elevation of the peak. 
But if you've ever hiked up a mountain before, you know that the trail is not likely to be a straight path. There are twists and turns, switchbacks, and sometimes, sometimes the trail goes down for quite a, quite a stretch before it shifts back up again. But if we don't continue to follow the path, as frustrating as it gets at times, we're probably going to get lost and we won't see the view from the summit. So even though practice is irregular and twisty, turny, we need to trust it. Trust that it will lead us where we need to go. Next is a question from a monk. The monk asks, I don't know why it is, but my mind often seems to be somewhere else. Could you help me to keep my mind from playing truant like that? Another question we can all relate to. And Banke responds, the unborn mind of the Buddhas is wonderfully bright and illuminating. No one, and that includes all of you, no one is ever separated from it. This absent-mindedness of yours is the same. Your mind's not really somewhere else. You're not absent-minded. What you're doing is making the Buddha mind into these other things. Making it into a thought, an object, outside of ourselves. And then Banke says, would someone whose mind is really somewhere else be inquiring whether it was or not? If your mind were somewhere else, you would hardly be aware of it. You wouldn't be asking questions about it. You're not even away from it when you sleep. Because if someone calls to you and tells you to wake up, you will respond and wake right up. You've never been apart from your mind in the past. You won't be apart from it in the future. And you're not apart from it right now. None of you here has ever been separated from your mind. Just as none of you is an unenlightened person, you've each been born with the Buddha mind. It's your birthright. from the very beginning. (laughs) 
As part of his reply to the monk, Banke then tells a story about a thief. And as a teacher, he, he was known for turning no one down. It didn't matter if you were a thief, a gambler, a bandit, or some other kind of so-called lowlife. Nothing and no one outside of our true nature. So Banke gets into this story. He says, when I was a youth, we had a rascal in this neighborhood called the Kappa. He was a notorious robber in the mold of Kumos, Kumasaka Shohan. The, and the, the footnote says that Kumasaka was the leader of a large and famous group of bandits. The Kappa plied his trade on the highways. He had acquired an uncanny knack of being able to tell at a glance just how much money a person had with them. He was always right. It was amazing. Anyway, he, he was eventually caught and thrown into prison. After a long period being locked up in a cell because he was such a master thief, his death sentence was finally lifted and he was released on the condition that he work as an agent for the constabulary. He later became a sculptor of Buddhist images and made a name for himself as a master sculptor. He ended his days as a, practic as a practitioner of the pure land faith and passed away peacefully in a Nembutsu Samadhi. Nembutsu Samadhi is a Pure Land practice of reciting a verse over and over. And then he goes on, by mending his ways, even a notorious thief like the Kappa died with a deep aspiration. So what does that mean for the person who steals because of the depth of their karma or sins? Robbery is the bad karma. Robbery is the sin. If you don't steal, you don't have the karma or the sin. Whether you steal or not is determined by you, yourself, not any karma. You don't think that what I've been saying applies only to stealing, or, um, excuse me, and don't think that what I've been saying applies only to stealing. It's just as true of any human illusion. They're all the same. Having illusions or not having them depends upon your own mind and nothing else. If you have illusions, you're an unenlightened person. If you don't, you're a Buddha. Outside of this, there's no shortcut to being a Buddha. Each one of you should fix this unshakably in your mind. 
I'm reminded of that, that wonderful quote by Jose Ortega y Gasset, which Roshi often uses. Tell me to what you pay attention and I'll tell you who you are. Comes down to attention. No matter our life history, no matter our past deeds or misdeeds, no matter what happened yesterday or five minutes ago, a second ago. What matters is what we do with our mind right now. And now. In this moment, where is your mind? The next question is from a priest. The priest asks, suppose right now that a man at once blind, deaf, and mute appeared before you. How would you deal with him? So is this priest referring to someone who all at once in a flash literally lost their sense of seeing, hearing, and speaking? This requires some decoding because in, in Zen koans, having this so-called triple disability is a metaphor that can have different meanings depending on the context. And in this exchange, it's, it's referring to someone who is enlightened, who's gone beyond the duality of self and other. And that becomes clear in what Banke says next, he says of these people with triple disability, you must think very highly of these people, the way you spend so much time studying about them, trying eagerly to join their ranks. But right at this moment, you are not blind, deaf, and mute. Instead of trying to become one, which would be very difficult anyhow, difficult only because this priest is caught up in thoughts about enlightened versus unenlightened. Instead of trying to become one, which would be very difficult anyhow, you should get to the bottom of your own self. That's the first order of business for you. 
since you don't have any of those disabilities yourself. Going around talking about all these other things will get you nowhere. Pay attention now to what I'm going to tell you. Pay attention now. There's a, a koan in the Blue Cliff record, the Heki Ganroku, that's called Gensha's Man of Three Disabilities. So it connects with this uh, exchange with Banke. Gensha's name in Chinese is Xuansha Shibei. And he lived in the years 835 to 908. And Andy Ferguson, <clears throat> Andy Ferguson in Zen's Chinese heritage gives some brief background information on him. He says that as a young man, Gensha lived as a fisherman on the Nantai River, and at the age of 30, he left lay life to enter a temple on Lotus Mountain. And Gensha carried on an ascetic practice wearing only a patched robe and straw sandals. He often fasted instead of taking the evening meals. He is said to have awakened one day upon reading the words of the Surangama Sutra. So that's a little brief backstory. And now here's the case. It's number 88. Gensha said to the assembly, The masters are always talking about the necessity of delivering people and benefiting sentient beings. Supposing you met up with someone who is deaf, mute, and blind, how would you guide him? Being blind, he couldn't see your gestures. Being deaf, he couldn't hear your words. And being mute, he couldn't speak even if you wanted him to. How would you guide him? If you couldn't guide him, the Buddha Dharma could not benefit him. So, in referring to someone who cannot see, hear, or speak, in the context of this koan, 
Is Gensha referring to an enlightened person or someone else? And that's one of the, the things a student working on this koan has to look into. But for the time being, let's just take it literally. If such an individual could not receive the teaching, that is, literally could not hear, see, or converse about the teaching, what about them? Is there any potential for their life to be enriched by practice? Could such a person wake up to their true nature, having not received the teaching, having not read about it, having not listened to any talks, nor engaged in any dialogue about it? What about them? There was a monk in the assembly who must have been very befuddled by Gensha's statement. Doesn't everyone have Buddha nature? Anyway, this monk then goes to Umon to get his instruction about it. Umon said, make your bows, and the monk did so. Umon then poked at him with his staff. The monk drew back. You are not blind, said Umon. Then Umon said, come closer. The monk then approached Umon, who said, you're not deaf. Do you understand? asked Umon. And the monk said, no, no, I don't understand. Umon said, you're not mute. And at this, the monk had an insight. So, so this monk had been stumped by the logic or illogic of Gensho's statement, enough to seek out Umon's help in understanding it. Again, aren't all beings Buddha? How could how could someone who's blind, deaf, and mute know that they're a Buddha, though, if they can't receive instruction? How could they understand how to even take up practice? How would they know who they are from the very beginning? Umon's line of questioning, prodding him, caused the monk to notice his thoughts. 
He was caught up in thoughts. How often do we get caught up in asking conceptual or abstract questions that aren't relevant to practice or, or just don't apply to us directly, personally? We may feel the impulse to try to wrap our heads around it and try to understand things through reason and logic. That can serve us well in a university course, but not in Zen practice. Next is a question from a layman who is entangled in thoughts about Banke as a teacher. The layman says, Master, I've heard that you can see right into people's minds. Right now, what am I thinking? And Banke says, you're thinking that. You're thinking that. Apparently, this guy thinks that Bankai has some you know, special powers or abilities. But actually, a Zen teacher in general is just, just someone who has been where you are. They've experienced firsthand the turmoil that the mind can produce. And they have the experience to be able to observe what obstructions are impeding a student because they've been there. Even obstructions that a student might not be aware of or possibly they're in denial of it. They're just further along on the path and based on their own experience, they can offer guidance. But there's a more essential point here. Again, the layman asks Banke, right now, what am I thinking? And Banke responds, you're thinking that. Banke's pointing out that there is no, no separate mind to see into. The only mind is the one that we directly experience. 
just this one. It has no limits. It's vast and it's wide. The Buddhist writer and ecologist Joanna Macy put it this way. We can place the self between our ears and have it looking out from our eyes. Or we can widen it to include the air we breathe. Or at other moments, we can extend its boundaries farther to include the oxygen-giving trees and plankton, our external lungs, and beyond them, the web of life in which they are sustained. And we can go even wider. This true self goes into the depths of outer space. beyond the Earth's atmosphere, other planets, galaxies, stars. There's nothing that confines us. Then another layman asks a different question. What happens when you become a Buddha? Where do you go? Banke says, when you become a Buddha, there isn't any place to go. You're already everywhere, reaching even beyond the universe itself. If, on the other hand, you become something else, there are plenty of places for you to go. (laughs) Meaning, if you live in your thoughts, you do become something else because you're somewhere other than right here. Your mind is divided. What happens? What happens when you relax into this stillness? Into the quiet that lies beneath the noise of our thoughts? What happens then? Just the pitter-patter of rain. Falling everywhere. There's no question that at this stage in Sashin, everyone's thoughts have settled. It doesn't mean 
that you're not going to have thoughts or you're not going to encounter emotional states. Conditions of the mind always come and go. But we're, we're fortified by all these days, these hours upon hours of zazen, such that we can more, more readily keep our attention on our practice and let the thoughts be just opening, opening, opening to this. But we still need to make the effort. Can, it can be tempting to coast, to do the bare minimum, and not go deeper. Don't settle for that. Another layman bowed before Banke and asked, Is it true that when someone is enlightened as you are, he can really see the past, present, and future worlds just as if he is looking at the palm of his hand? Banke looked at him and said, Is that a question... Is that question something you thought up beforehand? Or did it occur to you just now? In other words, have you been chewing over and reflecting uh, on this in preparation for our meeting? Or, or is this a, a natural, spontaneous question that you're asking? Then the layman admits, well, it didn't come into my head just now when I asked it. It's something I thought about before. And Banke says, in that case, it will be all right to leave that for later. First of all, what you must do right now is to find out about yourself. Until you've completed that, no matter how much I describe to you what the three worlds look like, you wouldn't be able to understand what I'm saying because you couldn't see them for yourself. And in the context of this exchange, the three worlds are past, present, and future. But in, in Buddhist cosmology, um, the three worlds can mean have other meanings, um, which we won't get into because it's not, not relevant here. And Banke says, once, once you've found out about yourself, the question of both seeing the three worlds, past, present, and future, and not seeing them will be something you'll know about quite naturally. There's no sense in, in my trying to tell you about it and no need in your asking me. Rather than do what you should be doing, dealing with the matter of yourself, 
you come here with worthless questions that you don't really need to know about now and miss the point completely. You're misdirecting your effort to what's altogether irrelevant to you. It's like counting up someone else's money when you're not going to get a penny of it for yourself. So listen to what I'm telling you. The important thing for you to do is to find out all about yourself. Pay careful attention to my instructions. If you follow them and become absolutely sure of them yourself, that very instant, you're a living Buddha. Then you'll realize how mistaken you've been to carry around needless questions such as the one you just asked. And you won't direct your effort where you shouldn't. So many of us fall into the trap of getting tangled up in concepts, intellectualizing our practice. We want a teacher to tell us what to do, to give us direction. How do I know if I'm making progress? What should I do differently? And a teacher can give guidance, but working on our practice is not like trying to solve a math equation or choose the right answer to a multiple choice question. There's no right or wrong. And you're not being graded. Forget about right and wrong. Forget about time. There's nothing that you need to know. You don't need to know any concepts. There's nothing you need to remember or to plan for. Be here. Stand still. Sit still. In the end, we can liken practice to riding a bike. When we're first learning how to ride, ride a bicycle, 
we're, we're extremely self-conscious about the position of the steering wheel, how we're pumping the pedals, keeping our balance, how to apply the brakes, how to shift the gears, doing all that and uh, all the while looking out for cars and pedestrians. It's, it, it seems like a lot to manage all at once. And when we're first learning, our attention is, is kind of scattered in all different directions. And we double guess ourselves. Am I doing this right? Is this the way you do it? I remember when I was a kid learning how to ride a bike, I was riding along a sidewalk and I had, yeah, I was trying to keep track of all these things, the pedals, the, the handlebar, um, etc. And I, I got so overwhelmed by it that I threw myself off the bike and into the grass. I just couldn't handle it. But with practice and persistence, just like riding a bike, you, you eventually get the hang of it. And, and you experience this, this freedom, the freedom of no-mindedness. You no longer have to think about how to ride a bike. You just get, hop on it and go. And it's so freeing to enjoy, enjoy the ride, to feel the wind, take in the scenery without a thought. There's no thought of steering of pedaling or braking. We'll end here and recite the four vows. <laughs> 